It's good to see you all. Uh, This morning we'll be continuing our series through the Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, As you see, I'm in chapter 18 this morning of the assurance of grace and salvation. Um, But before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, uh, we come to you this morning in gratefulness for who you are, uh, what you've done for our salvation in Christ. And Lord, we thank you for giving us this day to set aside uh, for your glory, for our good. Pray, Lord, that you would build us up this day uh, through this teaching hour. Lord, give us, give us the full assurance of faith that um, we'll come to learn about. And, Lord, prepare us in assurance of Christ to worship you uh, this morning. We ask that you would be with us, give us insight, give us wisdom, and uh, prepare us to enter your presence. We pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, uh, before we dig right in, um, kind of give an outline of where we're going this morning. So uh, we'll kind of recap some previous chapters that tie into this chapter here. And then in paragraph one, we'll see um, the possibility of assurance that assurance of faith is a possibility in the Christian life. Uh, The second paragraph is the reality of assurance. So assurance is not just, as it says, a a bare conjecture. It's not a a possibility on a fallible hope, uh, but that it's a reality in the Christian life um, that can be made about by various means. And then paragraph three will detail the attainment of assurance. Um, How do we come to a full assurance of faith? And uh, what is the nature of assurance itself? The final paragraph... Uh, details the degrees of assurance. So assurance in the Christian life, it ebbs and flows. Some come to a full assurance in this life, and others uh, may not. Um, but it'll talk about that and really remind us of the, um, the importance of knowing that, degree, that there are degrees to assurance, but it's not either full assurance or no assurance. But um, you can have faith that lacks assurance at times, or you can have a full assurance of faith in this life. Uh, but there are degrees, it ebbs and flows. So just to recap, um, if you recall, we're in a section that details the experiential elements of our salvation. Um, So you can think of the doctrine of soteriology being two-sided. There is what God is doing, what God did in eternity past for our salvation. The other side of that coin is how we experience the, uh, the elements of salvation. So um, assurance of faith is the, the final chapter in the confession detailing that other side, the human side, experiential aspect of salvation. Uh, it's building off of the previous chapter, which Cody taught last week on perseverance of the saints. Um, naturally, as we'll see, uh, the doctrine of perseverance leads to our assurance. The fact that God causes us to persevere in the faith um, is a grounds for our assurance before him. It's a natural implication. It's an outflowing of saving faith. Uh, but also, chapters 10 and 14 are really important to this chapter. Um, providentially, I taught on those two, so it's in my mind a lot, but it really ties into uh, this chapter especially. Um, so the chapter on effectual calling, so how God calls us to be regenerated. He elects us to salvation. And chapter 14 of saving faith, so the aspects of faith, the three... Um, the three aspects of faith, knowledge, assent, and trust are in view here, uh, as well as um, the different degrees of faith 
and even a false faith, which was talked about in these chapters. So it addresses this chapter on assurance, addresses the state of temporary believers. And we're going to talk about what that means again. Um, it was brought up in chapter 14 and chapter 10. Um, it was those who have, quote, the common operations of the Spirit at work, but not the saving grace of the Spirit. So I'll recap that as we go. Um, but first, let's begin by reading paragraph 1 of this chapter on assurance. Although temporary believers and unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presupposition, presumptions of being in the favor of God and in a state of salvation... Which hope of theirs shall perish? Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So here we see the possibility of assurance in the Christian life. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the possibility of assurance is laid out in this first paragraph. So it lays out the prerequisites for our assurance of faith. Of course. Again, and this is assurance of faith is an outflowing of saving faith. So true belief is required for assurance. You need true belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. But it also requires a sincere love of Christ. And that word sincere there is important because there are those who might love the, the benefits that the Christian life offers, uh, but not necessarily love of Christ himself. They're separating the giver from the gifts, the benefits that he bestows And the third prerequisite is an endeavor to walk in all good conscience before him, before Christ, before God. So again, um, to have assurance, you need true belief in the gospel, a sincere love of Christ, and you need to endeavor to walk in all good conscience before him. It doesn't doesn't state that you are walking perfectly before him, but you're walking in good conscience before him, um, and that comes with uh, true faith and repentance. So then, what is assurance? What are, of what are we assured exactly? Because there, you know, we can give a general definition of it, the word assurance. But what's in view here? What's, what is the doctrine of assurance in relation to the gospel? Well, it's that believers, they're assured that they are in a state of grace before God. They're no longer under works, under the curse of the law. Rather, um, they're, judged, they're no longer judged because Christ died in their place. They're in a state of grace. And because of that, because of their assurance, they can also be assured that they can rejoice in God's glory. The unbeliever, the unregenerate, cannot rejoice in the glory of God, the righteousness of God, because they stand ashamed before him. And third, uh, they can be assured that they have hope of being unashamed before God. They're unashamed in the gospel of Christ. Uh, That is the the third aspect of assurance they lay, lay out here. But what is meant by this phrase, uh, temporary believers? So it begins by speaking of, although temporary believers and other unregenerate men. So what is is this word, temporary believers? 
Well, as it says, they are unregenerate. They are among other unregenerate men. They do not have the spirit of Christ. They are not born again. And it also says that they vainly deceive themselves. So they have some knowledge of the gospel. They have maybe even an assent to the gospel. They agree that the gospel is true, but they deceive themselves because they don't trust Christ. And as it also says, they have a perishing hope. Uh, recall chapter 14 of Saving Faith. Um, it, it described this in further detail, what a temporary believer is. So this is not just being thrown out in the dark. It's building off of what was previous, previously said in the confession. So temporary believers are those who have the common operations of the Spirit at work. They have a knowledge, even assent, uh, to the gospel, but they lack real trust. Remember, those are the three aspects of saving faith. A knowledge of the gospel, an assent to it, knowing that it's true, affirming that it's true, and then trusting in Christ as a result. Um, so they have knowledge at the very least, and most would argue they have knowledge and assent, but they don't have trust. Uh, this is a slide taken from that uh, Sunday school lesson. Uh, Benjamin Peach is really helpful here on explaining what this phrase means, uh, temporary believers. So again, uh, they have common operations with the Spirit. Uh, this phrase is also referring to uh, the stony ground that uh, the seed of the gospel is planted, but it's on stony ground. It does not last. Um, it can't even bear the fruit that um, it should bear. Uh, it's a general faith. It's mere understanding. It's knowledge and even affirmation of the gospel, but not a trust in Christ. Uh, they have these temporary believers that have no um, true brokenness of heart, and they believe, this is Keach here, he says they believe that they must be changed, but they are not changed by believing. So they have a temporary zeal for externals, wanting external change, but um, not about the heart. And they find even some sense of joy on this earth, especially with some of the earthly promises of God. But some even find eternal hope, and sometimes that's their source of false faith, that they see the Christian life as, oh, well, I get to live forever. Why wouldn't I you know, say I believe in this if it means I get to live forever? It's a type of antinomianism, um, to be against uh, true, crust, true, true trust in Christ and um, denying that the Spirit has any, is working in the Christian life. Uh, there's important, te- important text here um, at work. So Romans 5, verses 2 and 5 give us a picture of the grounds for assurance. So verse 2, through him, that's Christ, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope and glory of God. In verse 5, and this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we see here a picture of assurance, our confidence before God, um, standing uh, solely on what Christ has done for us and has been poured out by the Spirit into our hearts. But in contrast, another proof text they use here is interesting, uh, from Job 8, uh, 13 and 14. This is speaking on a lack of, of assurance, a lack of confidence. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed, and his trust is a spider's web. So again, there we see this idea that the unregenerate, 
uh, don't have a true trust in the gospel, so they lack assurance because of that. Uh, They have a knowledge and even a a passing confidence, but that confidence will be severed. Um, That hope will perish, for their trust as a spider's web can easily be knocked down, blows away with the wind, and it does not last. Before we look at uh, paragraph two, are there any questions up to this point on um, the possibility of assurance in the Christian life? Maybe you have a question on what temporary believers are. Yeah, Kim. So in reference to the, the parable of the star, and, uh, it said that uh, the stony ground, get that. Would that not also include the, uh, those who were you know, on the shallow ground that sprouted up right away? Yeah, I think that's, that's what Keach has in view and the, the writers of the Confession have in view there in quoting the, or in referencing um, that, that they're temporary believers. There are different ways that might, you know, they might look different from other temporary believers. Some might, yeah, like you said, shoot up. Um, we don't see wither off right away. Um, so yeah, I think there are uh, various ways that temporary belief can be manifested in, in life. I would say the Christian life, but it's false Christian life ultimately. So, in a uh, practical way, I guess I should also ask temporary believers: Does that mean that you know, when somebody professes faith, right? Are we supposed to be like, well, no, let's just uh, wait a second here? How, how, how do you think that that would play out? Um, how long do you know, these people look at like yeah. that? Well, I mean, I think that comes down more to um, wisdom and prudence of the church. And later chapters of the Confession actually kind of address that. Because obviously there's a different uh, view of the church in mind in this Confession. Some Presbyterians use that argument to say, well, you believe that you should be baptized upon profession of faith. But, oh, what if that faith is temporary? Shouldn't you Baptists just wait several years? What if it's fake? And because they baptize not strictly upon profession. Um, so that comes down to more um, of a wisdom, um, a practice of wisdom of, <clears throat> yes, observing for a time, for a season, um, but ultimately uh, belief, faith, um, although we don't know the heart and there's no uh, perfect church under the sun, um, as we're going to see later in this chapter, actually, that we can know truly um, what assurance is. We can see that worked out in the lives of others as well, that it's not a, a passing faith. Yeah, Pastor Nathan. Yeah, that's a great answer, Chandler. I was just thinking back on that. And the fact that uh, Christ has entrusted the keys to the church. Yeah. Um, so baptism is, is not an individual matter. Ultimately, it's a church matter. Uh, we know from Scripture that there are uh, temporary believers. There are false conversions. Yep. Uh, we know that John the Baptist refused to baptize those whom he saw did not bear fruits worthy of repentance. Yeah. And um, so taking all those things into an account, we can say uh, the, the leaders of the church are, are the first kind of, uh, I guess, uh, door to walk through. And then the church ultimately is responsible for determining whether a profession of faith is credible. And 
pressure, things of that Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks for pointing that out, Ken. It's a good question to consider. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think that parable is is referring to um, is referring to temporary believers. That's more. Um, I actually think that could deal more with assurance in that we have saving faith, we have a true belief in Christ, and yet there's parts of us that are at war. Our spirit is at war within ourselves, um, battling with unbelief daily. But that's different than than temporary belief itself. Yeah, to not come to assurance. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully the next few chapters will clarify some of that as well. So, Moving on then, uh, paragraph two. So this certainty, speaking of assurance, is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith, founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel, and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit unto which promises are made, and on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, and as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. So here we see the reality of assurance laid out. So it begins by saying that assurance is neither bare conjecture, it's also not a probable, probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope. This is not just the, the most likely of all scenarios is that you can have assurance. This is a certainty in the Christian life. Uh, it is a certainty. It's not, it's not an assumption. It's not a false presumption. Scripture is clear. Christ is clear that you can come to an assurance of faith in this life. And if not in this life, then in the next life. It is a certainty. Hebrews 6.19 here is important. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. In Romans eight thirty-eight to thirty-nine, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is the grounds of the certainty of our assurance. You can be certain that assurance is a promise in the Christian life on the basis of who Christ was and what he did on the cross. cross. It is a certainty because of that. But what makes it such a certain reality? I hinted at it there. Well, in the confession... um, there's been pointed out that there's kind of a primary objective ground, and then there are subjective grounds that follow. So the primary objective ground is that it's founded on Christ's blood and righteousness, as it said there, says there on the fourth and fifth line. The primary objective ground, the, the ground that does not change, that is certain, is that our assurance is founded on Christ's blood and righteousness. The God-man died in our place. His atonement was perfect. You can be certain of your faith, of your assurance because of that. 
But then the secondary, subjective grounds, the, the grounds of assurance that um, are reciprocal, as we'll see, that can strengthen one another, there's the inward evidence of grace. So you're given a new heart and a new desire. This is linked with regeneration, of course. But we know, even when we don't act on um, our, our new desires as a Christian, we know now the law of God. It is it was already written on our hearts, but now it's been rewritten on our hearts um, by the law of Christ. We have a new heart that desires um, God and the things of God, that desires His Word, despite if we don't act on those at all times. Uh, there's always a battle with temptation in the Christian life. But there's also the testimony of the Spirit. So this is a knowledge, as it says, this is a knowledge of our adoption. So when we see the verses in Scripture about being adopted as sons and daughters of God, that is, and, and we believe it, it strengthens our faith. That is the testimony of the Spirit working to assure you of being adopted into the family of God, of being without judgment before Him. Uh, Keach here again is helpful. The Spirit is the witness of God in our souls, yea, such a witness whose testimony every Christian may trust to and rest upon. So when we hear, when we read uh, the Bible or Scripture verses about adoption, maybe even this morning, I didn't look at the Gospel reading, but I'm sure we'll be reminded through the reading of the Gospel of our adoption into God's family as a son or daughter of God. You can trust to that. Again, it's not mere conjecture. It's not a probable presumption. It is a certainty if you're believing in Christ. But remember these, these last two, the subjective grounds. Of course, these are the grounds of assurance, not faith itself. And that's important because if we, if we see these subjective grounds as the grounds to our faith itself, um, we'll begin to, you know, if our, let's say we do fall into sin, we might not experience inward evidence of grace at that moment. We're not going to be um, convicted by the testimony of the Spirit in that moment. So we, that does falter at times. And yet the primary objective ground does not. It is a certain reality in Christ, um, which is also uh, truly the ground of saving faith. Uh, James Renahan, in his commentary on the confession here, um, he shows how these two subjective grounds are reciprocal, that they build, on one, they build off of one another, consistently in strengthening our faith and assurance. The reciprocal action of the Spirit's testifying in Scripture of our adoption and faith's acceptance of its truth, so the inward evidence of grace, these two manifest the Spirit's witness so that, as the Confession says, nothing can weaken our confidence. This ties directly into paragraph 3 then. So this infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and struggle with many difficulties before he be partaker of it. Yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of means, attain thereunto. And therefore, it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance, so far is it from inclining men to looseness. 
So I have a question for you based on uh, that paragraph. That's an important question. It's heavily debated as well. What's meant by the first phrase there? This infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith. Does anyone want to take a shot at, at what they mean there? Yep. Mary? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, Dalton. It's not a necessary condition to be assured of your faith. You actually have to. Okay. Good answers. Good answers. Well, we'll consider this in further detail. Those are, those are good answers, and they, um, they are part of the, the bigger picture here. The question, really, that I have in mind um, behind that other question, what is the meaning of that phrase? Is assurance of faith... Is it of the essence of faith? Does assurance, is assurance, um, is it by nature a part of faith itself? So Calvin and the early reformers, they said yes. Luther said yes. And in contrast, the Roman Catholic Church said absolutely not. You can't have assurance in this life. There's, there's no assurance. In fact, that ties into the doctrine of purgatory, of indulgences, of, um, of penance, they're always trying to make it up so they, they can have some temporary assurance that they will be with Christ. But in the end, most Catholics admit, oh, well, I'm going to be in purgatory anyway to make, um, to make atonement for my uh, mortal, I believe it's mortal sins, I forget the distinction there. But um, So, yes, the early reformers said, absolutely, assurance is of the essence of faith here. The Roman Catholic Church says no. So what about the Baptists and the Presbyterians and their confession? They, it seems a little contradictory to their um, forerunners. Remember, they, here they say, this infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith. So is there a contradiction? And this is heavily debated. There are some really solid theologians that fall on both sides of this issue that the Calvinists, the people who followed Calvin and the Reformers were totally different in their theology from Calvin himself and the early Reformers. This is a huge debate. Um, But going back to paragraph two, just so we can clarify the situation here, it says that this certainty of assurance, again, certainty, it is a certainty, it is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith. So this infallible assurance of faith is stated as a certainty. Again, back in paragraph 3, this infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith. Well, there's a key word here. Does anyone want to take a stab at the key word in that phrase? That's part of it. That's not the key word here that will help us understand what's, what's meant. Infallible, yes is assurance of the essence of faith. People who wrote this confession said, absolutely. Is assurance as an infallible assurance of the essence of faith? Not quite. That is the key word, and that's what, unfortunately, many theologians totally skip um, when they, their whole book's written on this, this issue, um, believing that, well, the writers of the Westminster Confession, or the Baptist Confession as well, 
we're really teaching a sort of works-based salvation that you can't have assurance. That is a belief among a very um, select few theologians, but it is, a, it is a topic of debate. But they ignore that distinction there, infallible. Infallible assurance is not of the essence of faith. So going back to chapter 14, which was of saving faith, in paragraph 3 it says, This faith, although it be in different stages and may be weak or strong, Yet it is in the least degree of it, different in the kind or nature of it, as is all other saving grace, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. And therefore, although it may be at times, and many times, assailed and weakened, yet it gets the victory growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. So this, this paragraph here, we can't read chapter 18 without reading it in light of what they've already laid forth. Assurance is an outflowing of faith. And here at the end of this paragraph, as we see, our faith will be brought to completion. And therefore, we can come to a full assurance in the end. And some, as it says in the second to last line, many in this life will come to an attainment of full assurance through Christ. Because he is both the author and finisher of our faith. But it doesn't say all in this life. It doesn't say all. So to define infallible assurance here, which is not of the essence of faith, assurance is, but this infallible or full assurance is an assurance that as a result of faith is brought to its final completion, whether in this life or in the next. And there are many in this life, maybe you here, struggling with sin, with temptation, or um, assailed by different trials, suffering in this life, you may never come to this infallible assurance. And there are many great Christians in history who have died without assurance. Uh, I think of, the first thing that comes to mind is William Cowper, he's the hymn writer. He died without hope. Well, he had a hope, but he died without the assurance of his faith. Always questioning, "Am am I a believer? God, have you left me? And yet he always clung to the promises of God that, God would, persevere. God would cause him to persevere, though he never experienced that inwardly. He never came to such a full assurance. But we can be assured that he's with Christ now, and he has a full assurance now. And if you're lacking assurance today, you also have that promise that you will come to a full assurance, because Christ, he is the author and the finisher of your faith, and therefore giving you a full assurance. So in other words, assurance... It is a promise guarantee of faith, but it ebbs and flows. It may be strengthened or weakened, may be assailed, even totally dissipate in the Christian life. But again, paragraph three, he goes on to say, a true believer may wait long and struggle with many difficulties before he be partaker of it. So it ebbs and flows, but we will become partakers of it, whether in this life or the next. So how do we attain this assurance? If we are lacking assurance, what are the means that God has given us to be strengthened in our faith? To know that we are righteous before God, that we are adopted as sons of God. Well, it tells us by the right use of means. It's also interesting before that it says, he may without extraordinary revelation. This is not, you don't need to be in your prayer closet and you hear a voice tell you, I'm assuring you. No, it's, this is by the right, the common, uh, the uh, the ordinances that God has given us. So the right use of means here. Um, back in chapter 14, it explains what this means. 
Um, what, is, what are the means that God strengthens our faith? Well, uh, it says, faith, and by nature here assurance, is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means accounted, appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. So our assurance, an outpouring of our faith, is increased and strengthened through the ministry of the word, administration of baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means. And Hebrews 10 is helpful here. Um, I believe this this passage kind of gives us a picture of the three primary means of grace here. Um, verse, Verse 22 begins, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So he's laying forth how we can come to a full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Well, many will argue this is referring to baptism, actually. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And he also argued this is referring to the ministry of the word working, how we confess our hope. We hear it proclaimed in the Lord's day worship. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. The biblical pattern of the, the church's meeting together, it almost always includes the breaking fellowship and the breaking of bread. So this meeting together in view here is almost certainly referring to a meeting that includes the breaking of bread in the Lord's Supper. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing here. So we can see in this passage those three primary elements, the ordinances of the word of baptism of the Lord's Supper, as the means to coming to a full assurance of, the faith, of faith, as it says. And that's exactly what uh, the confession uh, affirms as well. well. There's a lot there, but are there any questions? Yeah, Pastor Nathan. Uh, maybe you're going to get to this, or maybe not, we're almost out of time, but <laughs> there seems to be a, a little bit of an elephant in the room. Insurance is not... The confession doesn't mention our good works in relation to the ground of our assurance. Yep. And it doesn't mention good works as strengthening of our assurance. Yeah, well, um, two things. One, I do believe that they would agree your good works can be an outward sign that can strengthen your assurance, but it's not the... Uh, it's not the source of that. I think that would be an example of, um, we can see the inward grace of the Spirit, as it said. Um, and one way we can be, you know, have that affirmed is by seeing, well, the love of Christ is being worked out in my life. And that's really what the church is, is here for to tell us. Brother, you might not have assurance, but we see the love you have for the saints and for God. We see your good works. But again, that's not the, the foundation of assurance itself. It can strengthen it. Um, but it's not the, the foundation of it. Um, the second thing I would say is, interestingly, the next chapter is the law of God. Um, at least that's what Chris told me this morning. I forgot to double-check that. But it's the law of God, I'm pretty sure. And it's interesting that they begin with, um, that before they even get to the law of God, we have a chapter on assurance. And then we go in to see the role of the law of God in the Christian life. And there it kind of hints at uh, the working, our, our good works, being a means of um, confirming true faith. Not as, a, um, not as a source of that, but as a confirmation of that. 
but that's really important that we're being assured of the grace of the gospel before we even get to the law of God here. So, yeah, Ken. Yeah, I'm listening to this. I, I love the corporate nature of, um, of this. Uh, I think it was paragraph two you were talking about primary and secondary mm-hmm. uh, means of assurance. And one of the things I think you could argue easily is, is the church being that as, as uh, amening the evidence of grace that they see in people's yeah. uh, lives. Uh, when we hear people's testimonies, as yeah. we encourage one another, Yeah. Um, so all the more um, underscoring to be a part of a local church. Yeah, absolutely. The, the church is, is central to every word written in this confession. It is, you can argue, it might be the most important doctrine in this confession is the church. Um, yeah, Pastor? Yeah, the assurance of pardon in our liturgy. Yeah, I mentioned that a minute ago with yeah. it. When we hear the assurance of pardon, we're being reminded, as, as it says, of the. Um, well, it's not in this paragraph, but the testimony of the Spirit of adoption. We're being reminded of our adoption if we believe in Christ, and the assurance of pardon is absolutely central to that. It's not that we're reading the Bible on our own and we see the gospel, and that's, that does strengthen us, but in the Lord's Day worship, we're being told by the leaders God has appointed, you are forgiven before God if you believe in Christ by faith. So, yeah. And I, I have a quick question. Uh, we're running out of time, but in relation to all of this, going back to the debate here on this infallible assurance, does assurance of faith lead us to antinomianism, to seeing um, the Christian life as not requiring any... Well, now that I'm saved, and I know I'm saved, I'm, I'm going to be with Christ in the end. I don't, I don't have any uh, response. I don't, God doesn't require any response of me to obeying his statutes. I'm assured. I don't have to. What would be your response to that? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Any thoughts on that? It sounds like a temporary belief. Yes. Absolutely right. Yes, it's a temporary belief. And, and even when you read the last half of this paragraph, it's totally dismissing any type of antinomianism. So it goes on. It is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So there's an example, Pastor Nathan, of your heart can be enlarged by doing good works, by loving the brethren, though not the source of that assurance. That thereby his heart, or in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness, in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of assurance. So good works are the fruits of assurance. So far as it is from inclining men to looseness. So contrary to the claims that a doctrine of assurance, Roman Catholics claim this. If you have a doctrine of assurance... You're going to think you have no, um, you have no responsibility to do good works before God, to love God, and love neighbor. Yeah, Jacob. Uh, back when we went through Titus, um, Titus is uh, Paul, obviously, right? Titus mm-hmm. is pretty clear that you know, the gospel teaches us to renounce all godliness and worldly passions. Um, so that's pretty full stop. Yep. I think that's a proof text here, actually, as well. I didn't, I didn't check it. I'm pretty sure. From Titus one or two, that's that's a proof text. Yeah, Karen. I would say even in our earthly relationships, we wouldn't treat them that way. Well, I know my husband loves me, but there's no obligation on me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in this next paragraph, if I can fly through it, we'll um, 
we'll see this husband, in one of the proof texts, we're going to see this husband-wife relationship with the, the church and the bridegroom of Christ as a key example of, of picturing assurance and even, you can argue, our duty before him. Yeah, Jason? I might have missed it, but how does the church and individual navigate a situation like with Kuiper you mentioned, this questioning his own assurance? Um, theologically astute, precise, reverent, but yet at the same time questioning is this true of me? Yeah. Is it appropriate for him to be baptized or particular supper teaching? Yep. It seems really precarious. Yeah, well, that's where um, one, the three aspects of faith are key here. Knowledge, assent, and trust. You can have trust without having assurance. Um, but also in view is, um, again, that someone can truly believe and their whole life be sailed. And yet we as the church are there to tell individuals who lack assurance, brother, if you are believing, you may not know, you may not feel assurance. You may think right now that, well, yes, I trust the gospel, but, and, I, and I know the gospel's true. I believe it but I just don't see how God would want to save me. I don't see, I just sinned, I just did this terrible sin. How can I be, how can I even find assurance? And yet the church is there as an appointed means from God to tell them, it doesn't matter how you're feeling. That's subjective, and that's where the subjective is reciprocal, but ultimately the grounds of our faith and our assurance is objective. Who is the object of your faith? It's Christ, the rock. He will not change. The object of your assurance remains the same. Um, He is the beginning and the end, your faith will be completed in the end, even if now you, you lack that assurance. Um, I think that's how I'd go about answering that. Yeah, Pastor? Yeah, eventually temporary or false comforts will leave the church. Yeah. Uh, the only instance in Scripture where we are uh, to uh, judge a conversion, a profession of faith to be false is in the category of church discipline. Yep. yep. So we may suspect, yeah, somebody isn't a genuine believer. Um, but uh, ultimately, we can't objectively say that, or shouldn't objectively say that, um, until the process of church discipline is yeah. complete. And, um, That's an appointed means that God has given His church yeah, for that. Yep. Yeah. And typically, eventually, false converts will leave the church. Yep. Eventually. Yep. And interestingly, to add to that is, um, if you're lacking, if if you have a lack of church discipline in your life. That on its own ought to assure you of your faith. If you're not under church discipline, there are some Christians that are hesitant to partake in the Lord's Supper. They're members of churches. They have true faith. In that. Well, I don't think I should partake this week because I'm, yeah, I fell into sin. I, I, uh, I've really been struggling with temptation or you know, not, not observing the duties that God's required. But the Lord's Supper is there for sinners, for those who, it is a means of strengthening that assurance, not of, it's not to take away when you're doing bad, it's actually, hey, you're doing bad, but you know, you know you are, you're not under church discipline, you need this, this is what your soul needs, um, so, yeah, church, church is central, uh, we've got to fly through this next section, paragraph four, and here we are talking about the ebbing and flowing of assurance, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation, diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence and preserving of it, by falling into some special sin, which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering, even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light, yet they are never destitute of the seed of God and life and life of faith. 
that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may be in due time be revived, and by, by the which, in the meantime, they are preserved from utter despair. And Jason, I think this adds to that answer to your question there. So here we see the degrees of assurance. It's not, it is a guarantee of salvation, but its completion will not occur in many until we are with Christ. Some may attain no inward assurance until the end, but uh, James Renahan says this phrase, I don't think it's unique to him, but little faith is not no faith. So lack of assurance might be a sign of little faith, but it doesn't mean no faith. Your faith is, um, it rests solely on its object, who is Christ. And there are hindrances to our assurance. As it says, negligence, backsliding, grieving the spirit, and some vehement sin or temptation. God's sovereign providences. So think of Job here. And yet, as it says, by operation of the spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by which, in the meantime, they are preserved from utter despair. So even when their assurance has assailed them, they are preserved from utter despair. And here, the doctrine of perseverance, that God perseveres his saints, is absolutely central. It's building off of the last chapter. It's absolutely central to our assurance. And just an interesting proof text to conclude is Song of Solomon 5, uh, 2, 3, and 6. This is an interesting proof text. I was reading it and um, I thought there's not very many places in the confession where Song of Songs is uh, referenced. Uh, but this is really important. This goes to the husband-bridegroom uh, relationship here. Um, so she speaks, I slept but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. So here her beloved uh, calls for her. She hesitates. I'm not prepared to enter his presence. What if I soil my feet? What if I soil... Uh, I've, I've taken off the, the white garment, you could say. And yet by the time she came to the door, he was no longer there. His count, the light of his countenance had gone. But yet, uh, if you read later on in, in Song of Songs, the next chapter, um, so in this, this passage, she desires her bride, sees him not. But later on, we'll see, she finishes her lament without despair. So chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And this really ties in with our doctrine of the church, that Christ is our bridegroom. We can read this as our own words as the church. But then he speaks. After she gives this this lament, as she closes the lament with a call of, um, of resting on the fact that her beloved um, is still hers, even if she does not see him. What does he say? He then speaks after her, My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn? Beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners. And this is what Christ thinks of his bride, the church. This is what Christ thinks of you if you're believing in him by faith. 
I mean, I find this just, you know, they didn't reference that second section there in Song of Songs. I think it's a really interesting uh, proof text. Is they have, they don't just quote proof text as one little verse, but they have the whole uh, passage in mind there. And um, yeah, this, this bridegroom imagery is, is central there. But we don't have time for questions. Uh, it's already 1020. I do want to give a book plug. I plugged this last time because it dealt with assurance, but The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. It's been a book of the month before. Um, I can't recommend the book, the book enough. Um, it's up there with the all-time Christian classics like Pilgrim's Progress, Augustine's Confessions, um, and others. If you haven't read this, you should. I probably read it once a year or at least listen to the audiobook every few months. Um, this is probably the best book you can pick up and read on insurance and um, the Christian life. But uh, with that, let's close with a word of prayer prepare our hearts for worship. Our Father, you have adopted us as sons and daughters, as those who believe in him by faith, in Christ by faith. Lord, we, we ask that you would give us the testimony of the Spirit, the inward graces that were spoken of this morning, to strengthen our faith, to give us, to give us that full assurance that you've spoken of in your word. Lord, help us to attain such an assurance. And Lord, let, let the appointed means that you've given us this morning in worship through through the word, through the Lord's Supper. Let these things strengthen our assurance this morning. Let this be on, on our hearts and minds as we contemplate uh, the gospel of Christ, the assurance of pardon, and the breaking of bread, Lord. If there are those here this morning who lack assurance, who lack faith even, let them see uh, the, the righteousness, the perfection of Christ, the greatness of Christ. Let us cling to him by faith, and Lord, we ask that in doing so, you would give us, give us that full assurance that is ultimately promised to the end. We look forward to the day when that will be made manifest in all of us. Prepare us for worship now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.